Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everyone, on a sunny December the 14th. Um, Many of our themes this year have been on history repeating itself, and unfortunately, over the weekend, history has once again repeated itself. There was violence in Washington, D.C. between... um, Uh, the Trump supporters and uh, presumably opponents uh, of those supporters. Much of the violence was geographical. It it focused on um, Black Lives Matter Plaza in a place called Harry's Bar in Washington, D.C. What is the deal with Harry's Bar? It's a hangout for the Proud Boys, the racist right-wing radical group who are avid followers of the current president of the United States. Uh, Geography then continues to matter in America. Uh, A few weeks ago, we had Tom Zollner, the writer, on with his book, The National Road. He argues that geography in America matters. He argues that in America, our our lowest common denominator is we all stand on the same ground. But he argues that in America, the concept of geography has undergo, undergone a powerful shift, places less relevant than it's ever been to those that can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who haven't been able to leave it. Geography then matters, particularly if you can't leave it. And one group in America, of course, who have never had the luxury of emancipating themselves from geography are African Americans. The wonderful new book out, uh, Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. Uh, it's one of, uh, it's on many of the, the, the best of 2020 lists, including the New York Times. Uh, its author is uh, Candace C. Uh, Taylor. Uh, and uh, I was thrilled to have Candace on, on the show to talk about this green book. Of course, we all know about the movie, but people will be perhaps less familiar with the book. Candace, tell me about this book. Why did you do it? Um, I did the book because I was in a place in my career where I was really questioning my life as a writer. And I was a black travel writer for many years and being on the road in America, traveling as a black woman, I would come across different situations. And I was commissioned to write a book on Route 66 And it was a travel guide. And I just was so just surprised that still that narrative of like, let's jump in our Airstream trailers and let's revisit the good old days. And when I learned that half the counties on Route 66 were sundown towns, which were all white communities and they were all white on purpose, I just wondered, well, how in the world did black people travel at that time? And I stumbled onto the Green Book by accident. I found it at the Autry Museum in Los Angeles and I thought, oh my God, this is my next project. And 
when I looked, this was in 2013 when very few people even knew what the Green Book was. So it just led me on that journey to this uh, book. Candace, every, uh, Candace, everybody uh, will, of course, be familiar with the movie. What's your position on the movie? Some people have been critical. Some people said it it, it simplified, it vulgarized the, the true story of, the, of, of, of much of the Green Book. What's your take on the movie? Generally, my take is that it just was mistitled. It shouldn't have been called Green Book. It really had nothing to do with the Green Book. It was very, um, it was very much a story about um, the driver, and it, you know his what the son wrote the screenplay. So it was really, um, I thought, strange that it was. I mean, even though they used the Green Book, it was never really referred to. I think there was three references to it in the whole film. Um, I feel like it's another example of things that, you know, and especially for black folks, it's like, we're just still even grasping our arms around what the Green Book was. We're just, the Schomburg, I had a fellowship there um, in 2016, and they just digitized their collection of the Green Book. Before that, we only knew of two editions. And even historians and people in academia still had very little knowledge about the Green Book. So it was surprising to me that me and a couple of other Green Book experts never heard from the production team from this film until afterwards and they did the screen testing and i guess the number one question was what was a green book after all these people had seen the film so they came to me and said you know will you explain what the green book is so supposedly i think i'm on a dvd explaining what it is actually digging deep and understanding what the death that felt the green book was misrepresented in the film um the green book site that they go to is not really indicative of what Don Shirley would have experienced. There were nice Green Book hotels um, that would have been better suited for him and his, you know, he had a man of certain comforts. So I just thought on so many levels it was it was unfortunate. Um, and if it simply just hadn't been called Green Book, it would have resolved a lot of the um, attention and the negative attention it's received because it was simply a story, it was a buddy travel guide, you know, trouble, a uh, travel story about a driver and a, a white Italian uh, man and, and his driver. So, or his um, uh, musician that he was, you know, showing, taking down to the South. So it, to me, it, it was unfortunate. Uh, Candice, tell me about the Green Book, the real Green Book, the, what it's called, the, the, the Negro Motorist Green Book. Uh, uh, authored by a man called Victor H. Green. Yeah, the Green Book was a travel guide. It was published for black people from 1936 to 1967 by this man, Victor Hugo Green. And he was a postal worker from Harlem with a seventh grade education. It was incredible what he was able to produce um, within a couple of years because there was such a need for it. It it started out with just Harlem sites because Victor Green was from Harlem and he needed it for his own neighborhood. Harlem was still very segregated at that time. And within a couple of years, it had spread all the way to the West Coast. Um, so it was very uh, successful. There were nearly a dozen other black traveler guides, so it wasn't the only one and it wasn't the first one, but it was definitely the most popular one and it had the widest audience and the widest reach. Um, there's a whole chapter in the book about how and why that happened, but partially 
Um, it was one of the main forces of its success was Esso gas stations because it was distributed by Esso. Um, and you could buy it at any Esso station, uh, which is ExxonMobil today. It's the same company. So, yeah, he was he was a brilliant man, and um, it's he was a fascinating man. We don't know a whole lot about him, but the Green Book was um, he and his wife Alma Duke Green. I don't think he could have done it without Alma. Were critical in the story about how, why it was so successful. Was the core of the book about? Uh, race and racism, about avoiding places where black people would be uh, assaulted or ignored or insulted? No, actually, that's the irony of the Green Book is when you get deeper into it, because it was published annually, um, it was ironically left out a lot. It wasn't fear-based. It was in the spirit of like, we can do this too. Look at the places that we can go. And he brought people to black communities that were self-sustaining communities with thriving black businesses. So it wasn't published in this, you know, tone of lack or scarcity or fear, almost to the point where sometimes when I was doing my research, I felt like it was a little tone deaf because it just like, don't you realize, I mean, when you look at all the different things that could happen to you on the road and all the sundown towns, like there wasn't a list of sundown towns in the green book. What is uh, a sundown town, Candace? It's an all white community and it's all white on purpose. And there were, they were th really throughout the United States and they were mostly in the North and the West and the Midwest. It was not, the South had its segregation signs. Everybody thinks it's the, they demonize the South as like, oh, Jim Crow. But no, when black people left the South, they really saw that Jim Crow had no borders. And these communities would either have a sign at the border saying, the county line saying inward, don't let the sun set on you here. Or they would ring a bell at 6 p.m. alerting the locals who the domestics and people who worked in the town that it was time for them to leave. So it was very and like I said, half the counties on Route 66, there were 88 counties along Route 66 that traveled from Chicago to L.A. Half of those counties were sundown towns. So it was very dangerous. And it was very difficult to understand what was ahead of you because again, there was no Twitter, Instagram or internet or even list of where these sundown towns were. It was kind of a minefield traveling the U United States as a black family or black person. Um, so Victor Green though, he didn't, he, you know, he did kind of live this charmed life in Sugar Hill district of, you know, Harlem. I mean, Duke Ellington was, you know, lived catty corner across the street. And um, they were the vibrancy of, you know, black intellectuals and and they hobnobbed and dressed really beautifully. And, you know, they were, um, they weren't rich, but they definitely had class, Victor and Alma. So I think in some ways, because he had a snapshot of what the other driving to the Virginia, he would drive his wife to Virginia regularly. So he understood the rigors of black travel and how difficult it was to find a good safe place to eat or rest. But in the, in the large scheme of things, um, the green book was very optimistic and it's, in it's design, you know, there are these people, they're dressed to the nines they are carrying their suitcases. They've got their heads up. I mean, you know, it wasn't about like, Oh, look how hard it is for us. It's, it was like, look at what we can do and we can travel like any other white American. 
So that was the spirit. Candice, we've had a number of uh, shows about travel in America. We had David Gessner, the geographer on the show about retracing the, the route of Teddy Roosevelt. The Zollner book that I talked about earlier is very much about the land. How much of the, uh, the Green Book was about the land itself, which is, as an outsider uh, myself, it seems to be the real glory of America, the mountains, the, the ravines, uh, the fields, the earth. Well, you know, that's an interesting, the, the national parks didn't really even get advertised in the Green Book until the later editions, later in the 50s is when we start seeing the national parks. And, you know, the tradition of the land for black folks, uh, especially in this country, is that remote rural places are not safe places to go. Um, that's why, you know, we see even today, even most recently, the national parks still have a hard time getting their black population numbers up. Um, so a lot of the places in the Green Book were in cities. They were in, those are safer places for black folks. So, um, and then in these, within these cities, there were all these, like I said, vibrant businesses, like everything from nightclubs to, there were banks in the Green Book. There were, um, haberdashers. There were all kinds of department stores or places, even liquor stores and um, drug stores. It was a real snapshot of all the places that black people really couldn't freely go throughout the country. So the more rural places or more scenic places really didn't become popular even you know in the Green Book till later, but if they did feature cities on the covers of some of the guides, uh, some of the Green Books did have um, a whole, they created a, a whole um, addition to train and train travel. One was dedicated to airplane travel. This idea of actually going, you know, international became more popular later because it was like sometimes even safer or more enjoyable to travel overseas. Black people were sometimes treated better. We found that with Langston Hughes and there's a big long tradition of that. So you can see the Green Book mirroring different points in our culture where Black folks felt more comfortable, but I would say across the board, generally they were more, less rural places were, were celebrated or advertised in the Green Book. You write a lot in the book about these culturally uh, iconic places, uh, some wonderful photos in the book. It's a tremendous book, as a, certainly as a Christmas present or as a mm -hmm. as a, as a memorial to uh, to Black culture and and, and in some ways uh, an America that no longer exists. Uh, one place that you focus on that I was particularly intrigued with is the the Dunbar Hotel in Los Angeles. Tell me about this. Why is it, in your view, such a, an iconic? Was such an iconic place? The Dunbar is incredible because it was one of the first Black hotels in America that was owned by a black man. Um, he was a dentist. His name was actually, his last name was Somerville. Um, and he bought it in 1928 and he was a dentist and he was sick of being thrown out of, or not, you know, being places because he was a black man. And he thought, well, I'll buy my own. I'll build my own. And, and he built this hotel and it was 
fabulous. And they served everyone from Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughn, Duke Ellington. I mean, all kinds of people, famous and otherwise, and SNCC or CORE, um, NAACP, you know, all of these Illuminati's of, of black culture. And it was in Los Angeles in the South Central District, which, you know, has been kind of demonized as the Bloods and the Crips, but South Central was really not like, I mean, it was, and it's not like that today. It's, it's very chill and relatively, it has none of that drama um, that it's just kind of been labeled. But, um, but back in the day in the forties, when it was in the, you know, the Green Book, there were over 200 Green Book sites in Los Angeles, and the majority of them were in South Central. And this was a vibrant community again with, you know, barbershops and nightclubs. And there was a real estate office in the Green Book that was also in South Central. So the Dunbar was right in the hub of, of that thriving community. And it had this Spanish colonial architecture. Inside, there's a beautiful atrium. Um, it's still standing today. It's been saved, thankfully, with the National Register. So we and for people uh, who are list just listening to this, uh, you, you're missing these slides. There is a slide of, of the Dunbar. Mm -hmm. um, Candace, uh, we had the historian Martha S. Jones on the show last month. Her wonderful new book, Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers About black female uh, emancipation, particularly when it comes to the vote. You mentioned earlier that as a, a travel writer, you had your experiences on Route 66, presumably as black woman, but also just as a, as a, as a woman. Um, there are some wonderful photos in the book of, uh, of black females on the road. Do they have a particular place in the black book? Uh, is there a, a, a gender piece of this narrative? Yeah, I've actually dedicated a whole chapter of my book to women in the Green Book and the role that they played. Um, because at one point, I mean, Victor Green, the creator of the Green Book, dies in 1960. So he never lives to see the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64. And right the year before he died, Alma Duke Green, his wife, took over the entire Green Book, which is, again, why she was such a critical force. And I don't think he could have done it without her. Um, I think because he worked full time as a postal worker and she was also working on the guide. So in 59, the whole entire Green Book, the masthead is all women. Um, it's And she's listed as the publisher and the editor and all the other people listed in the masthead, except for one who has initials. And we don't know the gender of that person, but everybody else listed as female. So there's that. And then there were so many female owned businesses that were celebrated in the Green Book like uh, tourist homes, they were among the first Airbnbs um, where widowed women generally would open up their homes if they had an extra bed and allow you know people to stay at a very, you know, especially migrants, people who were leaving the South and fleeing racial terror, wasn't just people who were on vacation that were using the Green Book. So people who didn't maybe have much money could rent you know, very cheaply a room and get a warm meal so there were the, all these beauty salons in the Green Book. There were a lot of female identified like Phyllis Wheatley hotels that were in the Green Book. Um, so women played a major factor and it was a nice, um, in my research, it kept coming up and I was really, it was fun to celebrate that and really dig deeper into that. 
Candice, why the title? I mean, obviously, the overground railroad refers to the underground railroad mm -hmm. uh, from a previous uh, a, 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 a previous uh, African-American uh, period in history. Um, what are the equivalents between the overground and the underground railroad in your mind? Why did you choose the title? Well, overground railroad came to me because I was actually I was I had a fellowship at Harvard and I was standing in the with John Jennings, who's a really incredible writer. And and I said, oh, it was incredible. It was like this overground railroad. And he said, that's the title of your book. And I thought, oh, my God, you, you might be right, because there was there was something so um, brazen about it that was you know in the same a similar way that the underground railroad was this pathway to freedom now even though we had jim crow we still had a lot of the tenements and a lot of structures the white supremacist structures were still very dominant in how black people were able to move or not move throughout the country and the fact that victor green created this guide where it's like you can go like I'm taking you to golf courses, you can go to beaches. It was very, and this is at a time when major newspapers like the Chicago Tribune told black people like to stay away from beaches because they're literally an irritation to white people. And even though that's unfortunate for black people, it's better if they just stay away. And the Greenbus said, oh no, 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 here, you can do this. Here's what you do. These are the places you can go. So in that way, it was very um, innovative ingen you know, the ingenuity that was involved in creating such a pathway for black folks, similar way that the Underground Railroad did. The, I thought the stakes were similar in terms of death. I mean, you ran into a wrong sundown town. You could get lynched or, or harassed. Um, there were so many, I thought, parallels in terms of like, this is what the 20th century overground railroad did and i think we're in a current state now with police violence and brutality where we really do need to remind ourselves like where are we now and how much um, of a pathway do people say like because my book really goes it ends in this story about mass incarceration which i think is a civil rights crisis of our time and so how many of those folks leaving prisons need an overground railroad a pathway into just a normal life where they can make a living and not be branded as a felon and not be allowed to vote. And there's all these other similar rights that have been taken from us um, systematically in this country and it continues. So that's why, you know, and it'll be more apparent in the book, but that's why I titled it Overground Railroad. Uh, Candice, a, a number of the books we've, and authors we've had on the show have been nostalgic for a, uh, another America. Uh, they've been writing as if we're at the twilight of American history, the decline of the small town, the decline of civility, the end of American dreams. Um, how would you fit your book and the African-American narrative into that kind of story? Well, nostalgia is always a dangerous, slippery slope because in some ways I can look back at some of these black communities. You know, if you look at Harlem, I live in Harlem right now. Um, if you look at uh, Bronzeville, if you look at South Central Los Angeles, it's easy to go back and say, oh my gosh, there were all these black businesses and wasn't it wonderful? And in some ways it was in terms of, you know, we didn't have 
the extreme levels of poverty um, that we have now. We didn't have the um, urban renewal hadn't kicked in at that point, um, which literally just decimated, bulldozed hundreds of black businesses all throughout the country, thousands even. So redlining um, became this double-edged sword where because we were forced into communities, we couldn't get, we couldn't live anywhere in the country. We had to live in redlined zones if any black person was in, you know, the government, um, the FDA and the, um, I'm sorry, the FHA loans were not applicable for black folks. So there were all of these, again, government policies that forced a situation where black people could only live in certain communities. And then we created something out of nothing. We made a way out of no way and in ways that were really powerful. And so I want to embrace that. And I want to look back on that and say, wow, that was incredible. Um, but I think it's dangerous again, to just fall back into the nostalgia factor and say, oh, it was better than, some things were better than, and some things are worse now. And that pendulum of justice, the book really traces when we made strides and celebrates that, but it also shows when we fell back and that's how history operates. It doesn't just keep getting better. And this idea that, oh, because we're in 2020 or 2021, things are just supposed to be a certain way. And it's, it's a false sense of uh, security in that narrative, especially in American culture, is that you know we're this great country and we just keep getting better. We may be great for certain reasons, but there are things that we really are not, that we have to answer for. And until we really stop assuming that we should be evolved into this state of equality um, when you look at how many centuries we've implemented similar practices and policies it's no wonder that we are where we are and how much work we have to do and so i think that taking that veil of that rose you know the rose colored glasses really need to be taken off well it's a wonderful book uh Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. It's more than a travel book. It's a book about the tragedy and perhaps in some ways the hope of American history. It's particularly inspiring, I think, because uh, of, uh, of the Green Book itself. So it's a kind of, it's a book about a book. But uh, Candace, finally, you're not just a writer, you're a multimedia artist. What other media are you building around the Overground Railroad? The book is a central reading, but I know you're doing quite a lot of other projects too. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm so busy. Um, I developed, I, I was a curator and content specialist for an exhibition with the Smithsonian. And that is a 3,500 square foot exhibit that's traveling the United States. Um, it just opened up at the, in Memphis at the National Civil Rights Museum and it will travel through 2024 to 13 venues, I believe. So there's that, I'm developing a digital interactive map. I received grant from National Geographic, so I'm building that. I'm working with the National Trust. I'm highlighting some of these green book sites in Harlem. I'm working with the National Park Service to actually preserve um, and write some nominations and also understand the history of these properties and the significance of these buildings, uh, green book sites on Route 66. I'm developing a mobile app um, that will be hopefully out by the end of next year and also a board game. 
So I just, it's a lot, but, um, but this material is so rich and there's so much, I think so many different ways to engage with it and learn from it. And we do have these, some of these buildings that are still operating some of these businesses and it's exciting, you know, it's, it's really, I think I'll be working on it for another decade. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.